Good morning. Isn't that a great song? That really just sums up everything I'm going to say. And so we could sing it again and say amen and save ourselves some time. But I love that song. Um, my name is Matt Moore. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone. And uh, this last weekend I spent some time with some old college friends. I've been graduated about 10 years now from Cal Poly. And uh, every year we get together during the summer with old college friends. We all did ministry together when we were up there. And then we all went our different ways. I came down here. Some others went to Orange County. Some others were in Fresno, Sacramento. And it's cool. We get together and it's like we, we pick up right where we left off. Just our conversations continue from year to year to year. And it's like we're all in different churches, some denominational, some non-denominational. Some of us are more passionate about other things and different doctrines than others. But like the thing that unifies us is the work of Christ. Like we're different, we're even more different now, but that bond that we have, our faith in Christ, that's what like keeps us together. That's the unity that we have. And it's always edifying. Like every time Sarah and I leave, we, we leave challenged and we leave edified. And... Uh, what I wanted to begin to unpack today was that kind of bond of unity that all of us have in this room that believe in Christ. That, that thing that unites my college friends back together, even though we're doing different things, our lives are totally different. The unity that we have is that thing that we call the work of Christ. Now when I say that, the work of Christ, I don't know what comes into your mind. Do you think of the cross? Do you think of the resurrection? Do you think about what he did here on earth? You think about what he's doing at the right hand of the throne of God right now? I know like a lot of times when we say the work of Christ, we sum it up by saying Christ died for my sins, right? That's true, but we make it sound so simple, we oversimplify it. it it's true, but it's not complete, right? I mean, is that really like all that Jesus did? Is that, do we just all agree with that statement and therefore we're unified? Is that what he accomplished on the cross? He just... He died for our sins. It's like the way we say it, it's um, Jesus paid for my parking ticket, you know? It's like, I don't know if any of you guys have had a traffic violation and someone else paid for it, maybe your parents or whatever, and it's like, you're grateful for maybe a day, maybe a couple hours, maybe a week, right? But then thereafter, you're not grateful anymore, and I feel like that's kind of our emotional response to the Lord. We get saved, right? And we're happy and fired up for a week or two or maybe a month, and then... We're not really thankful anymore. And so you have a lot of people in this world and in this building right now who say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. And you look at them and you're like, man, but you don't get it, do you? you know, I know you understand it. You get the facts of it. Just like my neighbor that rejects Christ gets the facts of that Jesus Christ died for their sins. But they don't. There's, there's, you don't get it. Like, do you know the difference between somebody that gets it and somebody who just understands it, like some of you in here with baseball, for example, some of you guys get baseball, like you love baseball, you understand everything there is to know about your favorite team, all the players, all their stats, their mom's name, their dad's name, you know everything about them, like you Dodger fans are crazy, like you follow them every day, you know exactly what is happening at every moment, right? They're losing constantly, so you have those people... The fans that get it, right? Dodger fans, keep listening. And then you have me, who I, I understand baseball, right? I, I understand the concept of the game, right? You got nine players, two teams of nine of overweight dudes that, with very little athletic ability. And then half the game, they're sitting on the bench. The other half of the game, they're standing looking pretty for the fans and the cameras and pants that are too tight, right? That's baseball to me. And so if I were to talk to you about baseball, you'd be like, ah, that's America's pastime? That doesn't seem very exciting. But some of you who get baseball, like I don't even like baseball that much, but when I'm around you, I kind of start getting fired up about things because you own it, you love it, you're passionate about it. And so that's what I've been praying, that's what I've asked other people to pray for today, that you guys wouldn't just understand the work of Christ, but that you would get it. That when you share the gospel, it's not like you're just going through some points like a history lesson, but when you share the work of Christ, that Christ died for your sins, that people would get fired up because they see you fired up about it. 
And the way that I'm going to do that today, believe it or not, is through the book of Leviticus. Um, <laughs> when I was driving here today, I had my two sons in the back seat, and it was kind of quiet, and I said to Seth, I'm like, hey, make sure you pray for Daddy. Daddy's got this tough passage to preach in Leviticus. Pray for him. He's like, Daddy, why do they give you the tough passages to preach? I'm like, buddy, that's, that's a great question. I got the short straw. So... Um, Leviticus, I think what it's going to do is it's going to help us unpack the work of Christ. And it's going to help beautify the work of Christ. That's my prayer, that our shallow understanding of the work of Christ would be deepened and it would be expanded and it would be broadened by understanding the sacrifices, the blood, the penalties, the violations against God's holiness. So that's, that's my prayer. That's what my hope is for today. But before we get there, I just want to do a little review where we've been Jared did a great job just talking through the Genesis and Exodus. Like we, we started the Pentateuch series with Preston last month. Preston talked about this far off God that's distant, that's sovereign, that just flung the world into existence. He spoke and the universe stood at attention and did exactly what he said. And then you have in chapter two this intimate God that comes from far off and he wants to dwell with his people, Right? And God has this place, the Garden of Eden, and he's dwelling with his people. And then mankind messes it up. Mankind chooses to be wanting to be their own God and going their own way. And then it gets worse and worse and worse outside the garden. It says in Genesis 6 that every intent, the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And then rather than making a name for them for God, they try to make a name for themselves, right? And so you have man just going farther and farther and farther from God. But as Todd talked about, this God is unstoppable. Sin's not going to stop him. The intents of men's hearts aren't going to stop him. Men trying to make a name for themselves cannot stop God making a name for himself. He is the hero of every story. And then we get to Genesis 12. And I talked about how God promised himself to Abram to make him a great nation. He has this covenant And through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, God chose to be faithful. Even when men misstep, even when they're faithless at times, God chooses to be faithful. Why? Because if he said something, he's going to do it. And then you get to the end of Genesis and you have this people, God's people, not in a land but in a different land, in Egypt, and God is making them a great nation in someone else's land. He's, and they're slaves, and God rescues them. He says, I am the great I am. I'm not like all these silly gods in Egypt. I am I am. I'm the unmistakable God, as Christian talked about. And it goes, he continues, and he says, you're not these, you're not these Egyptians' possession. Instead, you are my treasure possession. You're not this anonymous group of people. You are my distinct holy nation. And you see God rescuing them out of Egypt. Then you get to the end of Exodus and you got this issue. You have this holy God, and as it says again and again in Exodus, the stiff-necked people, and you have this tabernacle. So you have the place where God wants to meet with the stubborn people, but how is it going to happen? So Leviticus, think of Leviticus like the part two of Exodus. It's It's the way in which a holy God is going to dwell with a stiff-necked, stubborn people. So, let me just give you just some observations of Leviticus. First thing, has any of you read it? All right. Some of you have said, when you heard that I was preaching it, you're like, Matt, Leviticus is my favorite book of the Bible. (laughs) That's a lie, first off, (laughs) because I don't believe that. You broke one of the Ten Commandments. Um... Because I've studied it, and like, it was maybe here, maybe it's here now. Like, I, I still don't love it, but I've learned to appreciate it more. As you read this book, it's bloody, right? Lots of animals dying. It's grotesque, it's disgusting, it's amazing how many animals had to die because of our sin. As you continue kind of studying Leviticus, you realize that every day, Two animals had to die. A lamb had to die in the morning. A lamb had to die in the evening as a burnt offering. And then every Sabbath, two additional lambs had to die. And then every feast and festival, there were even more animals that were offered. Not to mention the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all these offerings at various times throughout the weeks, people would bring 
to sacrifice, to show adoration, to show worship, to atone for their sin. So if you were there by the tent of meeting, you'd realize there was a lot of blood being shed. Say you were standing on the outskirts of the tent of meeting, you were just looking over the fence at what was taking place. You would see an offer bringing an animal, one of their best animals. They would bring in the animal and they would get it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they would lay their hands on this animal and confess their sins over it. And then they would slit the animal's neck. The animal would fall dead. And then the priest would step in. And the priest was more like a butcher than a pastor. He would cut it up, he would take the blood, and he would fling it against the sides of the altar. Sometimes he would take some of it inside the tent of meeting. And then after that, after all that was done, it says of the Lord that he forgave, he restored, he atoned for their sin. And you, you look at that, and then it even says it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you're like, seriously? Like that, all these innocent animals dying, that pleased you? No, what, what pleased the Lord was finally that a stubborn, stiff-necked people was finally being faithful to him. He didn't find pleasure in all these animals dying. He found pleasure in the offer finally sacrificing and doing something that he had commanded. Now, some of you, as you read through Leviticus, you might think, well, I just don't like this. There had to be another way. Like, I don't like all this bloodshed. I like animals. Like, really, did all these animals have to die? God, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. And before we're too quick to point the finger at God, we need to point the finger back at ourselves. Because we're the ones that chose this death thing back in the garden. We're the ones that chose this death. God looks at us, he's like, you chose this. I wanted life for you, but you went and ate, and death came. And this sacrifice of this animal is in place of you. If you don't like this animal dying, you climb up there on that altar and you die. You see, God provided a substitution, a way to substitute us. We deserved to get on that altar and be slaughtered. But instead, the animals were slaughtered in our place. I mean, it's, it's weird that we get sometimes more offended about animals dying. Why don't we get offended about Christ dying in our place? Christ died in our place. He was our substitution. So as we read Leviticus, one thing that you should realize is that sin has messed things up. Sin is grotesque. Sin is disgusting. As you just picture for a moment all those animals being slaughtered, you're like, this happened because of my sin. I mean, we make the statement, Christ died for my sins. Do you realize, have you ever unpacked that term sin? Do you realize how much got messed up? I mean, just think, you and God. Not only are you at arm's distance from God, even further than that, but God is out of fellowship with you. He's, you're his enemy. His anger, his wrath abides upon you. Not only that, think about the fellowship that you don't have with other people. We hate each other, we backbite, we slander, there's disunity among each other. That's all the effect of sin. And then think about what you daily live with. Think of the grief, the sorrow, the regret, the shame, the embarrassment that you have because of your sin. These are all the effects of sin. So as you read Leviticus, like, it should help us realize, wow, we, we did mess a lot of things up. There is a great price to pay. All these animals had to die. There was a multitude of sacrifices for the multitude of sin's effects. But if we can like look past and look deeper past the blood, we should be able to see Christ. It, Christ is not mentioned once, yet we should see Christ through that blood. It's like, it's a shadow, as it says in Hebrews. It's a shadow of the things to come. You know, like a shadow, my shadow on the back wall? It's like a faint outline. It's indistinct, it's unclear, it's black and white, it's gray. Like, you can kind of make out what the real image is. And the real image in Leviticus is Christ. We should see these types, these symbols of Christ. It's like Leviticus is like a, a picture book pointing them to this ultimate sacrifice that was to come, namely Jesus. And so, as you look at Leviticus, look through the blood, hopefully to see Christ, but also, you should see love. 
That makes sense. You should see love. I would say Leviticus is a book of love. Why? Because God had to stiff-neck people and he was wanting to dwell with his people and he could have just let them wander and do their own thing, but he so desperately wanted to meet with them and be known by them and to be loved by them. That's what he desired for this people. And these sacrifices prefigure the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And what is the ultimate sacrifice of Christ? It's an expression of love, right? While we were still sinners, Christ climbed on that altar and died for us. He was slaughtered for our sake. And so these sacrifices should prefigure not only Christ, but his heart, his love to be with his people. So that's what I'm hoping you get as we go through Leviticus. Um, And so if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to start in Exodus just for a moment because the first significant sacrifice is not in Leviticus, but is in Exodus. The people of Israel, remember they started off, they were in bondage. And God did all these plagues rescuing his people. And the Pharaoh would not let them go until the last plague, and it was the plague of the firstborn. And the way in which God prevented the angel of death from killing the firstborn in the homes of the Israelites was he had them take this lamb, this Passover lamb, and the lamb was to come and live with them for a few days. And then on, the, on that evening, the family was to kill the lamb, cut its throat, spread the blood over their doors, And so that when the angel of death came through, it would pass over the Israelites' home because it saw the blood. And because of that, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back for the Pharaoh. That was the sacrifice that allowed the people of Israel not only to be passed over judgment, but to be released from their bondage. And it's like that's a small picture of what Christ came to be for us. Christ is that Passover lamb. When we say that Christ died for our sins, he died so that the judgment of God would pass over us. Do you believe that? When you say that statement, Christ died for my sins, are you thinking God's judgment no longer abides on me? It's passed over me. Instead, his favor is upon me. Because a lot of you live so scared of death, thinking about what the afterlife afterlife might hold. You don't really know, like, when you stand before God, are you going to be seen as righteous? And I would say yes. Why? Because of everything you didn't know, because of the righteousness of Christ, because the blood of Christ is over your doorpost. God sees that, doesn't see you. But a lot of times, what we do instead is we, we live in this bondage, and we live with such uncertainty But Christ came to be that Passover lamb so that we could get out of that bondage, get out of those chains so that we could be freed up to serve him and to worship him. It's like what I was saying a couple weeks ago. Remember that faith thing? Faith for Christians is not having more faith in our faith. It's not having more confidence in him. Instead, it's having more confidence in God's faithfulness. That's what faith is. It's not like knuckling down, I'm going to believe you even more. I'm going to believe in my faith, in my faith. It's not about you. It's having more confidence in God. If God says something, if God says his judgment's going to pass over us, let's live, let's live with our shoulders held high knowing that when we die, we're not going to see judgment in the sense of heading to hell. We're going to see instead the beauty of Christ and we're going to dwell with him. So, Let's get to Leviticus because there's a lot of stuff in here. There's five sacrifices. Think, think like each of these as you read Leviticus 1, 2, 3, and 4. He outlines these five sacrifices. And as you read them, they're somewhat overwhelming. The first one, you have the burnt offering, and then the grain offering, then the peace offering, then the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And as you read it, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels, but each one was doing something unique. So I'm hoping to unpack each of them so you can kind of see how Christ fulfilled that, Christ fulfilled that, Christ fulfilled that. Because when we say Christ came, he didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill each of those, to be the ultimate sacrifice. So let's look at the first one, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. This is the burnt offering. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. 
He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may accept it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood, throw it against the blood, throw it against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron's, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, and on the wood, on the fire of the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this first offering was a burnt offering. They'd bring an animal, they'd kill it, they'd cut it up, and they'd put the whole thing back on the altar and light it on fire. And it's believed that there was always a fire on this altar because there was these burnt offerings being offered, and the entire animal was being consumed. And this burnt offering has the idea of this, that we are offering our entire self. As I bring this animal and this animal is entirely consumed, we are God's everything. We're giving our entire lives, not a portion, not a part, but our entire lives to him. It's like when Christ, Christ came and Christ put him enti- his entire self out there for the Lord. When he was standing there in the garden before he was crucified, remember what he said? Your will, not my will be done even to the point of death, right? But a lot of times, what do we say? We know that Christ is our everything, but what, what we do instead is we say, your will be done, God, as long as mine can be done as well. And we hold back from God. We have this half-hearted devotion. We don't give him our everything. We give him parts of ourself. But this burnt offering was a way in which for the people of Israel to say, God, I'm all yours. You rescued us out of bondage. You are my Passover lamb. You are my everything. And this burnt offering was a way in which to show symbolically, God, we are yours, and you are our God. As you get into chapter 2, you have the grain offering. And the grain offering was very simply to bring to the Lord your best. Grain was something that you had prepared, that you had worked for, and you bring it and you say, God, I worked for this, I labored for this, but this is not mine, even though my hands made it, this is yours. And they would give it to the Lord. And so these first two offerings, the burnt offering would say, I am entirely yours. The second offering, not only am I entirely yours, but everything I have is yours. And so it was a way for the people to say, God, you've done everything, and not only all of me, but everything I have and own is entirely yours. And although we believe this, although we know Christ gave his everything, his all to us, for whatever reason, we don't give our all back to him. We hold things back, we hold our life, we hold our devotion back, and we're almost okay with being spiritually mediocre. We're okay with not giving our whole heart to him. But do you realize that Christ, just as he, just as God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't get them out just so that they could kind of be his people and kind of give them their heart and their devotion. He wanted them to be his everything, his treasured possession. He wanted to be the center of their affections. And when we say that Christ died for our sins, we're saying that statement and putting ourselves fully out there and we're saying, God, you are the ultimate sacrifice and now I am your living sacrifice. I am, I am your everything. Everything I have, everything I own, every thought that I think, every breath I take, I am yours. That was the first two sacrifices. As you get into chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, you can read it, but it's very similar to the procedure of the other ones. But chapter 3 talks about this peace offering. When you hear that peace offering, just think, there was, it was a way in which to praise the Lord for the peace that they had vertically with the Lord and the peace that they had with one another. And what they would do is not only would they offer an animal, but it's really cool. They would sit there in the presence of God and have a meal with him. It was very similar to communion that we do, where you'd sit in the presence of the Lord and enjoy his fellowship because you have peace with him, and then you'd realize that you have peace with one another, that we are the people, and we are a people because of the sacrifice that God has given to us. And so as we think of Christ fulfilling that, Christ is that peace offering. He's our reconciliation. But do you believe that? 
because I was just talking to a girl a couple days ago. She was sitting in my house and she was telling my wife and I some things she'd been struggling with. And she said, Matt, when I screw up with this particular sin, it takes me three or four days to get back in fellowship with the Lord because I just feel so bad and I feel like he doesn't want to be around me. I just don't feel close to him. And I listened to her and I said, you know what worries me is not that sin. It worries me your reaction to that sin. You don't understand the gospel. Because if you understood the work of Christ, you'd realize that when you sin, you can confess that sin. Remember 1 John we talked about a couple weeks ago? If we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So I looked at her. I said, you don't get the work of Christ. You have to understand the work of Christ. You shouldn't feel condemned. You shouldn't stay far off. Instead, when we sin, you realize that's an opportunity to run right back into the lap of God. We can run right back into his embrace. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have that reconciliation. We could have that peace with God. But also, we, we, we don't want to just look vertically. We also want to look horizontally. Because not only did Christ come to reconcile us vertically back with his Father, but Christ came to reconcile us with one another. Some of you in here, you're at Cornerstone because you're running from conflict in relationships that you have with believers at other churches. I'm telling you, me as one of the elders and the other elders, whenever we have new people come to Cornerstone and we found out they came from a different church, most of the time, at least I suspect, that it's because of some disunity, some lack of fellowship, some unrestored relationship. Do you realize that that doesn't preach the gospel that defames the work of Christ? Some of you women in here have been so wronged by your husband and so unloved for so long. Do you believe that Christ can restore your marriage? Because he came to bring reconciliation. Some of you husbands have been so disrespected for so long from your wives. Do you believe that God can heal that marriage? Because Christ came to bring that bond of peace between believers so that we could have that reconciliation. That's what preaches the gospel. When they see people that have been wronged, restoring, forgiving, acting in humility with one another, that preaches Christ. That's powerful. That's unexplainable. That's the power of God. That turns heads. That's what people want to see. That is what will wow people with the statement, Christ died for our sins. But some of you, you're hearing me say that and you're saying, Matt, but you don't get it. You don't understand how I've been wronged by my father and abused. You don't understand how awful my spouse is and what's taken place. I can't forgive. It's just too much. I would say to you, if you have that mindset, you have no idea of how much you've been forgiven. If you think you can't forgive and you can so easily accept the concept of God forgiving you, but you can't understand the concept of you forgiving this person, it should prove to you in this moment that you have no idea how much Christ died for just on your behalf. I mean, we've been forgiven so much, we can forgive this one or multitude of grievances because of how much we've offended God. See, Christ, he came to be that peace offering, to restore us, to be that testimony together of the gospel. Then also, as you continue through Leviticus, you finally get to one of these mandatory offerings, the sin offering. The sin offering was... Not necessarily an act of worship. It was to deal with sin, obviously. Unintentional sin. When you realize that you had transgressed the law of God, you would come and you would bring the appropriate animal. And the coolest thing about this, as a side note, is that as you read through Leviticus, hopefully you notice that it says, if you have this, bring this. But if you don't have this, then bring this animal. And if you don't have either of these high-valued animals, bring this one. Why? Because the Lord didn't want just the rich coming and offering sacrifices. He wanted the entire nation, the rich and the poor, to come. And so whatever they could, whatever their best was, he wanted them to bring it. And so you have the sin offering. And at various times through the year, people would be offering sin offerings. But there was a day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, 
when they were commanded to offer a sin offering, not just for themselves personally, but for the entire nation of Israel. Let's look here in the passage, Leviticus 16. This whole passage in Leviticus 16 is about the Day of Atonement. It says this, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. Look at verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, the only time during the year this happened, inside the veil, the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. You see, Christ came to be our sin offering. He came to be our atonement. He came to be that first goat that dealt with sin. This first goat, you think it was more fortunate, but the other one was let go and presented alive. This goat was killed. This goat dealt with the wrath of God. This, not only are we separated from the Lord, but we're separated and we're at odds with him. We're enemies and his wrath, his righteous anger abides upon us. And this goat was offered to atone, to cover that. And when Christ came as our sin offering, as he hung there on that cross, that altar, he absorbed the wrath of God. He, as theologians say, he's, he's our propitiation In other words, he was the wrath catcher. So that the wrath that was directed at us, he stepped in and he absorbed that wrath. So when we say Christ died for our sins, Christ died for our sins and sin's effects and dealt with the wrath of God. But when you say that statement, do you you live in light of Christ bearing the wrath of God? Because a lot of you, you have the mindset like when you sin, something awful is going to happen to you that God's going to smite you. you. You think a thought, maybe you're driving down the freeway, you have an inappropriate thought, or you're on the phone with somebody, or there's road rage, or whatever it might be, you sin, all of a sudden, what do you think? You think God's out of fellowship with you? You think he's upset with you? You think all of a sudden you're going to blow a tire, hit a guardrail, go over a cliff, burn, die? <laughs> I like, honestly, sometimes when I get on a plane, I think I'm Jonah. <laughs> I am Jonah on this, like, I didn't have a good day yesterday, I'm Jonah. Like, if this plane starts having problems, I will go to the door, I'll jump. So the rest of the plane, like I'm, like I'm terrible with this, but I think like a lot of times I just dwell in the sin and I think I def- let sin define me, right? But when we say Christ died for our sins, that Christ came to be our propitiation, the wrath of God is not directed at us, but the love of God. Because we're not children of wrath anymore. We're children of God. We're his sons and daughters. He loves us. He's not angry with us. Something awful is not going to happen to us. Why? Something awful happened to his son, Jesus Christ. He substituted himself for us. But there was another goat. You might think it's the more fortunate goat, but it's not. Look at Leviticus 16. The other goat to which the lot didn't fall was the live goat, and it says this. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over all the iniquities of the people and their transgressions, all their sins. I mean, just think how long this took, possibly. And he shall put them on its head, send it away into the wilderness by the man, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Verse 22. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Not only did Christ come to deal with our sin, he dealt with the shame and the effects of sin. And just like the second goat, the first goat dealt with the wrath and the anger of the Lord for having his justice violated. But the second goat took away the sin and separated the people, disassociated the people from the sin. This is an honor-shame culture. 
Honor and shame was everything in this culture. And as they watched that goat go over the hill and go off into the distance and out of sight, so should they think of their sin, that they would no longer be associated with that sin from the previous year, but that they would see themselves as clean, as atoned for. But a lot of you in here, you get Christ died for your sins, you get that the wrath of God doesn't abide on you, but you just feel weighed down and burdened. Your heart is overwhelmed, you feel so unclean, you feel dirty, you feel disgusting. When you sin, maybe you're found out, then you feel embarrassed, you feel humiliated. And as you live in that sin and let that sin define you even longer, then you feel regret, right? You feel remorse, you feel further embarrassed and disgraced, you just feel completely undignified. But when we say that Christ came to die for our sins, he not only dealt with sin and sin's penalty, but also the effects of sin. He bore our sorrows, as it says in Isaiah 53. He took upon himself the grief of sin. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because a lot of us, instead, what we do is we, we live in the past and we think the past will always identify us and always define us. But if we believe that Christ died for our sins, we then believe that we, guess what, are no longer sinners. Congregation, Cornerstone, please don't call yourself sinners anymore if you believe that Christ died for your sins. You are saints because of the blood of Christ. Not because of your righteousness, you are saints by grace. You are not defined by sin. You should not be identified either by sin. Instead, your identity is a child of the Most High God that gave his son and shed his blood for us. That is our new identity. That is our new clothing, is the righteousness of Christ, not sin. I mean, I've said this before. When you share that with an unbeliever, there's no hope. I'm a sinner just like you, right? Well, why would then I want to be like you? I like being me better than you. It's like the hope we have is we're saints, not because of anything we did, but because of our Savior that died for our sins. The way one author put it, he said this, instead of living in the sunshine of God's forgiveness through Christ, we tend to live under an overcast sky of guilt most of the time. And what kind of hope is that? When we have our shoulders low, when we have our face downcast, I mean, Christ didn't come and die on the cross for our sins so that we would be filled with shame and embarrassment and have a frown. No, he died so that we would have life and that we would enjoy truly enjoy his atonement. So one more. There was five. Five sacrifices. First one, burnt offering. The second one, grain. The third one, peace offering. Then the sin offering. Then there was this final one, which is kind of weird, but it was called the guilt offering or the trespass offering. And it was kind of associated with the sin offering, but someone would bring it when they realized that their sin did this. This is key. Their sin caused damage. And what they would have to do before they brought the sin o- or the guilt offering, they would have to go and make restitution with whoever they had wronged, whatever injustice they had committed, they would have to go make restitution plus 20%. And then they would bring that offering to the Lord. Do you realize that Christ paid all of our debts? Remember that song we sing, Jesus paid it all. He paid every bit of it. But just like that song, that song says, Jesus paid it all. Remember that popular hymn, All to Him I Owe? I get the gist of that, but that's not completely accurate. Jesus paid it all. I don't owe him everything because it's not like God loaned us his righteousness and then we're on a payment schedule to pay him back. No, Christ died and he paid the price. He was the only sufficient sacrifice and he was the only sufficient payment in God's eyes. And to think that we can pay God back, you know, it's like, okay, God, I get that you paid it back, but I just feel like I owe you more. I'm going to do this, this, and this. If that's our mindset towards obedience, like we're paying God back, we should be proven to ourselves once again that we don't get how indebted we are. We have a thought, and we're like, you know what? I'm going to make up for that sinful thought 
through this act of righteousness. I don't, we have to go back to that sinful thought and dwell in it for a moment and realize we don't understand how disgusting and how damaging that thought really was. Because there is nothing that we could do to ever make up even for one misstep. Because we're talking about a holy God here. So Jesus is our restitution. Jesus paid it all. Some of you, you, you still sit here and you think, but Matt, I hear all these offerings and all these things that took place, but you just don't get what a mess I am. You don't get how I messed up my family. You don't get how I disgraced my spouse. You don't get how much my kids hate me. Like, you don't get it like I have messed up way too much. I'm not worthy. Even grace, even Christ's sacrifice cannot be sufficient for me. And all I want to do is just remind you of the prodigal son in Luke Remember the prodigal son? He squandered his father's wealth. He totally disgraced his father and the namesake of his father. And his father was sitting there, actually standing, waiting for his son to return. And when his son came back, he ran to him and his son said, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. And what did the father do? Did he shame him? No, he said, let's celebrate. Let's kill the fattened cow. Let's eat together because... You've returned to me. You see, no matter what you've done, no matter how awful you think your sin might be, Christ came. He is the only sufficient sacrifice. He is enough for your sin. He is enough for your transgressions. He is enough for all the damage you've caused. So I'm hoping that you're beginning to see that this little statement that we make, Christ died for my sins, when we unpack it, it means so much more. Like, Look at this little video. Let me just talk you through it. When we make this statement, Christ died for my sin. Do we really know what sin is? Do we really know all the damage we caused, everything that we messed up? Just think about some of the things we've talked through this morning already. Next video. The wrath of God, the shame that we experience, the separation from others and from God, the damage, not to mention the bondage that we're in. Just think about that. That is just a small sampling, some of the highlights of what we messed up. But these Old Testament sacrifices, God loved them enough to provide a means to cover the wrath and the shame with the sin offering, the separation from others and God with the peace offering, the damage with the guilt offering, and the bondage he delivered us being the Passover lamb. And as you read these Old Testament sacrifices and you get overwhelmed, you're like, I am so thankful that I don't live in that time and all of that stuff that took place. Then think about Christ. Because Christ is the one New Testament sacrifice. He is our peace offering, our guilt offering. He is our sin offering. He's our burnt. He is our everything. Now some of you guys can sit here. You can take that off the screen. And you can ignore what I just said. And you can say, you know what? I still understand Jesus, but I don't get it. You told me that I was going to get it. I still don't get it. It's not that big of a deal to me. I'm just going to continue living however I want to live and ignore the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at this passage in Hebrews, because this passage in Hebrews is probably one of the most scary passages in all of Scripture. It says of those in the Old Testament, verse 28, those in the Old Testament that denied these sacrifices. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurred the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And this is one of the most scary verses. And is outraged, has completely ticked off the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Does that scare you? I mean, you could sit here and you could ignore the sacrifice of Christ and say, you know what, it's not really that big of a deal. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, but I'm going to go live however the heck I want to. Do you realize that what you should expect is not love, Instead, you should expect the fearful expectation of the judgment and the fury of God's fire. I mean, those of us 
that claim it, but we continue day by day to reject the sacrifice of Christ, that we disrespect and wipe our feet on the blood of the covenant that not only saved us, but that sanctified us. And we daily tick off the spirit of grace. I mean, that's a scary thing. That's a, like that, that is what we want to definitely avoid. Is not just to say flippantly, Christ died for my sins. Now let's go party. Christ died for my sins. I just want to live however the heck I want to. I got my fire insurance. Now I'm going to go live for myself. That's ignoring the work of Christ. Some of you, you don't ignore the work of Christ, but you kind of add to it and you circumvent it. Last Thursday, I was talking to a buddy of mine and we were out to eat and we were talking about sin and he's like, Matt, I, I get that Christ died for my sins, but what I do is when I sin, I punish myself I beat myself up, and then I try to have a couple days where I'm working myself back up righteously and impressing you know, myself with these righteous deeds, doing what I should, and then I get back in fellowship with the Lord. And that sounds good, that self-pity and beating yourself up, that sounds good kind of cleaning yourself up with righteousness, but do you realize that God just says, that's just filthy rags to me. That's just dirty. It's disgusting. Because in the midst of our sin, he doesn't want to beat ourselves up. He doesn't want us to somehow clean ourselves up. He wants us to cling to his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to hold on to him. I mean, that, if I could sum it up, that is the only appropriate response to the work of Christ, is just clinging tighter and tighter to him and saying, it's not me, it's you. When I sin, when I have inappropriate thoughts, I'm confessing, I'm coming humbly to your sacrifice. There's nothing I can do to impress you. There's nothing I can give to repay you. You are my everything. As it says here in this last passage in Hebrews, how he sums up everything. We, as these New Testament saints, we have an altar, not like the other ones. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice and sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's the choice right there. We can either bear the burden and the bondage and the shame and the embarrassment and the regret and the grief and the sorrows of sin and continue living out of fellowship with God with his anger abiding upon us, his wrath, and out of fellowship with one another, We could live there in that spot, bearing that shame, or we can join Christ outside the camp and bear the shame of his name. That's our choice. We either cling to that and live in that, or we cling to Christ and live in him. That's the choice. That's the sacrifice. That's what God... You you realize that all of these sacrifices that we just went through, the whole book of Leviticus is just like a means to an end. It's just getting the people sanctified, holy, so that they could actually serve him and meet with him and know him. They're like a means to an end. Like God wasn't pleased, believe it or not, even if they obeyed these burnt offerings. All the prophets, they look back on Leviticus and they say to the people, even if you did these burnt offerings and these sacrifices, God's not pleased with your obedience to them. He's pleased with you loving him. He's pleased with you knowing him. These sacrifices just make you holy, atone for your sin, restore and forgive you so that you can finally be a people for God to do what he's commanded you to do, to be this light to the nations, to be in fellowship with him. As it says in these last two verses, as that passage continues, through him then, through Christ, what is our response as we cling to Christ? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, these sacrifices just freed the people up so they could praise the Lord, that they could love God and love people. And the sacrifice of Christ, it's a means by which we can be restored into relationship with God so that we can actually do the greatest commandment, the first two commandments, loving God and loving people. And what we do as a church body to remember that, 
to remember that thing that Christ did, that Christ died for our sins, what we do is we do this thing called communion, the Lord's Supper. Often we get together here and we do it in a service at times. Sometimes we do it on a Wednesday night. We take the Lord's Supper together. But more often we do it in homes. And I've asked the community leaders in your neighborhood, there's a group somewhere in your neighborhood. If you're not part of one, just email the church and you can join them hopefully this week or next because I've encouraged all the leaders to do communion this week. That as you take of that cup that represents his blood, as you eat of that bread that represents his body, you think that one sacrifice outdid everything those Old Testament sacrifices did. When I say Christ died for my sins, it doesn't say Christ continually dies for my sins. Christ died for my sins once and for all. One act did it all. When we think Christ died for my sins, when we look at that cup and look at that body, we realize that Christ not only, not only saved us, but he delivered us from the bondage. Those sacrifices kept them in bondage. We've been delivered from bondage. Those, the sacrifice of Christ was able to perfect even our insides, was able to purify our hearts. Those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't even touch the heart. Those Old Testament sacrifices just gave temporary forgiveness. Through Christ, we have lasting forgiveness. Christ's sacrifice is not outdated. It's 2,000 years old, but it still is bringing atonement, still bringing forgiveness, still bringing power day in and day out, sanctifying a people for God. So this week, I'd encourage you to take that and remember that together as a people. So my prayer has been, as I've prepped, as I've looked through Leviticus, is that you guys would no longer say so quickly, Jesus Christ died for my sins, and not think just about the depth of Christ and his beauty of his sacrifice and that you wouldn't move too quickly past the sin that we've committed and the damage we've caused and the grief and the shame we've caused ourselves and caused others, that you would realize that that statement, Christ died for our sins, is a huge statement that demands more explanation. So let me pray for us. Father, help us to be your people that live in light of Christ's sacrifice. May we not be so dumb and foolish to think that we can impress you with our own sacrifices, our own cute little righteous deeds, but instead, Father, help us to live in light of your sacrifice. Lord, you are our everything. Cause us, work in us, to realize and to live in a way that reflects we get it. We actually get it. So Father, I pray that every time we see the cross that we would think differently about your cross. Lord, and everything that you accomplished for us, help us to be a people of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise and adoration. Lord, somehow work in us so that that statement would mean more to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.